Hello, I'm Greg Hall. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Alligator Energy Limited. We are a uranium development and exploration company, which also look, is looking at some energy minerals uh, within our tenements as well. We're advancing our Samfire uranium project in South Australia through early development stage and a fuel recovery trial. It's an ISR project, and we're leading that through into a planned feasibility during 2024 and then onwards as we plan towards production. And we have uranium exploration in the Northern Territory and in the Cooper Basin of South Australia, along with some nickel cobalt exploration in Northern Italy. Greg, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, it's been a while since you've been on uh, the done, done a Crux interview. I think it was 2021, so kind of um, 18 months uh, ago. The uranium market has been up and down since then. Um, what have you been up to? In, 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 can you just kind of summarise the, the work that you've done since, since we last spoke to you? Well, in simple terms, we talked to, to Crux when we had just completed a, a 30 million capital raising in late 21. That uh, gave us the wherewithal to recruit the teams that we needed to go forward. And so we've done a massive amount of recruitment. We've moved from about five or six people up to closer to 17 now in that time period. We, uh, we got on the ground for our main project, the Samphire Uranium project, with the first drilling for about uh, 10 years on that project since it was discovered back in the late uh, 2007 or 8 into 2012 and uh, have elevated the, the resource to a higher cutoff grade and an ISR amenable resource and we've done two uh, resource upgrades in that time. We've also undertaken a scoping study during late 22 and published that uh, only during uh, last month. And so we've had uh, been out marketing that in the last few weeks. Uh, we, we had restarted exploration work up in the North Territory in Arnhem Land uh, that was out of action due to COVID for some years. Uh, we've also uh, about to undertake our first exploration on the Big Lake Uranium Project, which is a new greenfield site with potential ISR amenable sedimentary ba bands above a, an oil and gas basin. And so we're about to start work on that ground this year. And, um, and and also have undertaken a uh, ground EM survey over our cobalt nickel projects in northern Italy. So uh, a fair amount of work post-COVID, if you like, uh, to get back on the ground. But but certainly the Samphire project is the one that's advancing the fastest. Thank you. That sounds like you've been pretty busy. Um, of that $30 million that you raised, how much have you got left? 20. Yep. Okay. Okay, so that's um, that gives you a little bit of a well, a, a, a very healthy buffer. Okay, so let's let's look at the the, the Samphire scoping um, study that you've just published. The the work that you have done on it, um, the, the the drilling, the resource. When you talk about the kind of the cutoff grade rising, um, what do you, can you can talk, tell me a little bit about that? What's what's the background there? Well, we inherited uh, when we purchased or acquired the project. Uh, um, two resources. One was effectively a current resource at a very low global cutoff grade of 100 ppm, uh, the Blackbush deposit. That's the main deposit we've been focusing on. And a second resource at Plumbush, which is not a resource any longer. It was a Jork 2004, so it's out of date. Uh, and we, uh, we're now recalculating an exploration target range on it. But if we focus on Blackbush, it was about 32 million pound at 100 ppm, but it incorporated uh, apart from the, the sands, which uh, occur at 60 to 80 metres deep, and those sands are the ones that contain the, uh, the ISR amenable uranium, there's also some small clay layers above and below that, which, which won't be 
ISR or in-situ recovery amenable. So we've excluded those clay bands. That took out about 10 or so percent of the resource. But we also wanted to make sure that the, the, um, the resource that we created was realistic and amenable to uh, ISR production. So um, 250 ppm is a, is a pretty typical cutoff grade for an ISR amenable resource uh, globally, in fact, both, both in Australia and in the US and elsewhere. So we, uh, we have currently an 18 million pound resource with, uh, with uh, 10 and a half million pound indicated status. And that's, that's the work we completed in March this year as well. That, that indicated level resource really dictated then the schedule for the scoping study because under ASX, Australian Stock Exchange guidelines, when you're doing forward-looking studies, forward-looking uh, schedules, at least three quarters of your schedule has to be supported by an indicated or higher level resource. So uh, our schedule for the scoping study we put out is, uh, is uh, around £1 million per year over a 12-year period for £10 million total production with ramp up and ramp down. So, so a lot of our work in late 21, early 22, and right through the latter part of 22 and into 23 has been about improving the, the knowledge of that resource, lifting the quality of that resource, getting the understanding of the field in a much better way, and, uh, and, and allowing us to issue put this scoping study out one of the key aspects of um isl recovery is uh flow dynamics within it's kind of the 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 relationship between porosity and permeability how how have you satisfied uh, yourselves that that's going to um i mean what's the work that's been done to kind of support those interpretations or those um um uh, projections well, a wide range of work. First of all, the, the, the company who found the deposit back in uh, you know, 2007 to 2008 undertook some initial uh, hydrogeological work and test work between wells and, uh, and developed a hydrogeological model which, which showed that there was a, a very good porosity or pore space within the, within the sands. Uh, these are compacted sands. They uh, sometimes have some very shallow interbedded or millimetre-sized clay bands, but in general they're, they're quite... Uh, Listen, but they're all flat lying. Um, it's roll front driven, so you need to follow the roll fronts, of course. But nonetheless, um, that work we built on, we've updated the hydrogeological model, we've done further test work. Not only that, we drilled 14 uh, sonic cord holes. So we pulled out 100 millimeter cores right through the, the sands and mineralized areas of the sands. We pulled them out. We, uh, we, we immediately froze and double-wrapped them so that we could get them to the, the Anstow test site in uh, New South Wales in Australia. And we, we went through with Anstow a full testing regime on uh, permeability and porosity of that, which verified what we've been seeing in situ. Then we also undertook uh, a significant amount of bench-scale testing. So we actually put the selected cores horizontally and applied a uh, matching the sort of the, the, uh, the by scale the depths of the sands. We applied just sort of a, a gravity pressure to go through, push the lixiviate uh, using our saline groundwater, pushing the lixiviate through, and extracting the uranium. So we found a number of things. First of all, it is excellent porosity. We are getting very very good um, with very low pressure uh, the water moving through the ground. Second, that if you get the the even the salinity saline groundwater with the lixiviate into contact with the uranium, we're getting 95 to 98% recovery of that lexiviate. So there's, it's, it's pretty well all coffinite. It dissolves very easily, and, and it's, it's worked well. Um, so that bench scale testing 
helped with the, the porosity permeability testing along with the, uh, the hydrogeology we've been doing. The previous company did do a, uh, let's say got partway through a trial ring in the, uh, in the um, sands. They drilled the ring, they put wells in, they did bromine hydrogeotesting, then they did bromine tracer testing. So uh, that's the previous work that was done. Um, so we've emulated some of that. We're about to do a pilot field recovery trial in the last quarter of this year. So we, we're now drilling the, uh, the monitoring bores, we're starting to drill the rings, and uh, have been designing up a small pilot plant to put on site to, uh, to do that uh, in-situ test work. So now we want to test not only the, the full recovery potential um, and, and uh, bring up the uh, solution through an IX plant, uh, but also verify again through those three trial rings in, in the Blackbush area, uh, the porosity and permeability. But we, in every test we've done so far, we've been confident with that. Uh, what depth is the... Um, what depth is, is the target horizon and do the clay bands uh, above and below help with your kind of containment of your, um, of your fluid flow? Yes, they do. So the, the target depth of sand is roughly between 60 and 80 metres deep. And so there's a, a clay band at 60 metres, which is a later age clay band. And the basement here is granites. So the the weathered granite, which forms clay on the top, so the, the paleo channels areas we're in are incised to the, to the weathered granites, and uh, the weathered granite forms a clay as well. So we've got overall, uh, on top and bottom of the sands, we've got the, uh, a confined aquifer. Uh, occasionally within the sands, you'll see a thin band of, of uh, clays, and quite often you only know it's there because you've got one roll front here that might be one and a half metres thick, and, and it's a bit forward and then back here you've got a roll front which is about sort of five meters back or ten meters back and it's about a meter thick so so we are now mapping out the uh, with that sort of detail using pfn tool in in our target horizons sorry what's a pfn tool prompt fission neutron so a prompt fission neutron tool is uh, it, it emits neutrons and by measuring the neutrons that bounce back you you may have a direct reading of uh, essentially u235 so uh, you're not relying only on gamma. We take gamma, of course, as well. So in what we did when we first picked up the project in our first drilling in 21 and early 22, we drilled 14, as I said, sonic cord holes, pulled out the core. We assayed you know, half or a third of that to make sure we knew the exact assay. In those holes, we also ran gamma tool and spectral gamma tools. We also ran the prompt fission neutronal PFN. So we've got an excellent correlation through those tools of that, and pretty well most in-situ recovery miners in the world, in particularly in Australia, we tend to use a prompt fission neutron tool because you can do a, a rotary mud hole and uh, and you can use the PFN. It obviously operates in groundwater because you need the groundwater. Um, you can measure get direct, a proxy for great reading. That's right. The other thing you've got to do is you've got to caliper the holes because if you get some variation in that uh, uh, the, the density between the, the sands and the, and the water, you've got to know that distance to calibrate the PFN accurately as well. So we caliper every hole. Is 60 to 80 metres, I, 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 I'm not up up on my isr um, but is that isn't that too shallow don't you want to do don't you typically want to have a kind of greater uh, overburden and kind of um constrained um pressure or i mean or, no or you, need a, you need a head you need the right head depth of water we've got that head depth so we've got um uh, at, at that depth and uh, more than 40 meters head depth in situ in the ground even though you've got the, these uh, clay bands holding it so it is 
it's got enough uh, depth and pressure to operate. But remember what you're doing is um, uh, you need to have the groundwaters, but what you're doing is there's a natural flow in these grounds just gradually to the east between one and four metres per year. It's very slow-moving hypersaline groundwater. What we do is we're interrupting that flow. You drill a, a ring of holes, whether it's a four or five or seven ring pattern, um, you allow lixivian, the, the groundwater, you, you circulate the groundwater, you, you, you don't extract without circulating, you circulate the groundwater, you dose it with about two, two litres of acid every 10,000 litres you circulate. That's enough to dissolve the uranium effectively and you draw it up an extraction well. So you, you essentially... Um, changing the flow pattern in that ring compared to the overall ground movement. So uh, as long as the porosity and permeability correct, you're right, and those questions are valid, um, then, then you can extract the uranium effectively. So uh, 60 to 80 metres is shallow, but, uh, but it, works, it works effectively, and, and uh, we will be showing that with the three-ring trial. Um, Look, in the 120 metres is probably the other shallowest ISR mines in Australia. They've got up to 250 or 300 deep in some areas. And I know the, um, the Kazakhs are now doing down to five or 600 metres, I think, in some areas. But, but that generates its own issues. You've got, a, you've got a lot more cost with that for directional drilling, etc. But, but no, we, it's one of the advantages we have. We've got enough head pressure to, to work effectively in ISR. We've got good porosity. Uh, and we've got shallow deposit. And what that means is every one of our um, production wells is much cheaper to drill. Got it. In terms of the kind of resource size, uh, 10, 10, 11 million pounds um, in your kind of mine planning, uh, is, 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 is that an, enough? I know you've got kind of a positive uh, NPV and uh, the IRR is up at 29% from the scoping study, but is, is that opportunity to grow the to grow the resource and does do you feel kind of 10 million pounds is just a little bit too too small well we've actually got 18 million pounds so we inferred and indicated you're allowed to use some inferred into the schedule of right course. okay so, so inferred and indicated is 18 million pound we're drilling again now we we are planning to lift to target lifting the the total resource to well over 20 million plus uh, and the indicator portion to at least 15 million plus. That's what we're targeting in, in our program for this year. Now, what many people don't understand about ISR is you don't need a big resource to, to start a, a well-economic project. So uh, a good um, project, start-off project size for ISR is around 1.2 million pound per annum. So we've sized our major components in this scoping study for 1.2 million pound we're running it at one because we're restricted just by the current level of uh, indicated resource for 75% of the schedule. So, so we'll, we'll be lifting that this year. Um, many projects uh, at, at start at 1.2 million pound with about a 15 to 20 million pound resource. UR Energy started around like that. The Beverly Mine here in Australia, which started 25 years ago, started with 15 million pounds and 1.2 million pound per annum. It's now running at 4 million pounds and it's discovered multiple ore bodies around it but uh, in our recent presentation if your your listeners uh, and viewers will have a look at that we can we've shown on one of those slides that we've got seven kilometers north south by about two or three kilometers wide of known paleo channel area we're drilling in blackbush around 15 percent of that 10 to 15 percent only so we've got a lot of extent to cover in our future exploration the reason we're focusing on Blackbush is, is uh, at the moment is, is for the few key reasons. First of all, 
um, getting 20 to 25 million pound uh, at, a, at a good resource category close to an existing plant is exactly what you want. So, so we want to take this forward in production uh, at uh, around 1.2 million pound a year would be our targeted level. We, we have to lift the resource to be able to achieve that, but we're doing that now. And that means you've got an operating project. That's, that's the most important. Now, that will take even now four and a half years to get in place because you've got a three-year approval process post our field recovery trial to get in a mining lease and, uh, and full environmental permit. And that's in South Australia, which has got five five approved mines and has been operating uranium mines for many, many years. <coughs> Excuse me. But that's pretty common in in, uh, in the world. You still need a good period of time to get that full mine approval. Um, the next thing is it is the right time to be bringing a new project on. Uh, you, yourself and, and your clients would know that Already, there's been a big increase in long-term contracting by restart projects. So I'm, I'm talking about uranium projects, which have been on care and maintenance, that are wanting now to restart. Uh, most of those are in-situ recovery. Um, companies like Peninsula, like UR Energy, like Energy Fuels, uh, like Boss Energy here in Australia with the Honeymoon Deposit. Um, you've got new projects like GoVX. So there's a number of projects that are starting now on their cost base. And they've been putting in place in the last 18 months uh, initial long-term offtake contracts. And we know those prices have been somewhere between sort of the, the, the low to high 50s. Um, what that tells us is um, as those contracts get put in place, as further contracting is done, there's still going to be a creep up in that long-term price. And we've seen that in the, in the last 10, uh, 12 to 18 months. So it is the right time to be getting ready to start talking about contracts in about uh, 12 to 18 months. So there's reasons why we're focused on Blackbush. And the third reason that, that I want to bring up there is we've got full ground access over that Blackbush deposit. We've, we've not only got an, a, uh, an agreement in place with the, the local Indigenous group uh, who have been doing clearance work and, uh, and uh, we have an, our first Indigenous employee on the project, but also we have uh, an access agreement in place with the landowner, the pastoralist, to not only do the work we need for the field recovery trial, but also to acquire back the land we might need for a future project. So, so that's our logical focus at the time. <clears throat> but further to the south, um, to the next pastoral lease, we're engaging with them now to get on there for future exploration and drilling work. So, yeah, we've got a fair amount of work to do there. Um, and in when you're talking about black bush, are you including plum bush as well in in that kind of exploration or that that that, that uh, that scope. No, Plumbush is five kilometres to the south. So, so that's <coughs> excuse me. That's our next target, if you like. We'll be um, working through to get down to that during next year. But and um, it, it, it it was a jork resource, but now it's an exploration target. Um, can you just give me yeah, a kind of great, a, yeah. a, a rough? Uh, what was the historic jork resource? You know, under two thousand four, it was about fourteen million pound, at, but at a very low grade, about two hundred and forty or two hundred fifty ppm. So not very high. Good. Um, now you mentioned that uh, w- once the field uh, recovery trial is completed, you enter into a three-year approval process. Um, the how long will the field recovery trial take? How much will it cost? And and then will you be able to start a feasibility study in parallel with your permitting? Uh, yes, we will. So the field recovery trial is planned for late this year, the third quarter of this year. It's really only a three-month trial because we've tightened the ring spacing. So normally in a production ring spacing of this, <coughs> excuse me, this side of deposit, 
you'd be talking a 25 to 30 meter radius ring uh, around an, an extraction well. So it can be quite large. And, and we can vary that quite effectively because we're shallow, which is good. Um, we're doing a 10 meter radius ring because we, we're not trialing here to, to really look at the, the, uh, the overall hydrogeology. We know that well from what we've been doing already. What we're doing is we really want to do, to, uh, do the, the leach curves. So the ISR leach curves as you run this, which show the, the, the rapid buildup of extraction that you get when you first put lixivir down and how that tails off. Because that leach extraction curve really tells you how many you need in operation, how many rings in a well filled to make sure you maintain a certain production level. So that's important. The next thing we want to try out is, is we are uh, doing a localized reduction in salinity within the ring. So we have a small reverse osmosis plant. We take our hypersaline water, which is about, um, I think is about 40 or 40,000 salts, and we we're going to target reducing it down to about 10,000 salts or so within that, so I create a plume within that sort of um, uh, pore volume of the ring. And the reason for that is while the uranium extracts well in the saline water, in the IX plant, um, uranium competes with salt for the, the uh, extraction points on the resin. So you will always get extraction of uranium, but it's inefficient if you've got a lot of salt present. So, so we reduce it down to about 10,000 uh, total salts, which is still very salty, um, but that does extract cleanly. And then, in fact, these resins will work up to 20,000, so we may not have to, to go that uh, steep. So we're trialling that out as well, uh, essentially creating a plume of lower salinity water within the, and around the ring, and then you circulate within that. It's similar to what other projects are doing or planning. Honeymoon, for example, are doing a similar thing on their project, uh, mainly to reduce calcium rather than salts, but, but it's uh, not an uncommon thing. But we have to make sure we can do that effectively as well. Um, then we move straight into uh, the results from that, if they're positive, uh, we'll move straight into a feasibility study in 24. Now, we've already initiated early work on a, on a mine approval. We, we actually have done a, what's called a retention lease approval, which is what we have to put in place, a smaller area for this field recovery trial. But we had to do the flora fauna surveys, a, all, a lot of the community engagement work, which is still ongoing, all of that's being initiated. So that's, that's an early kickstart to a full mine approval process. And uh, once we've got the, the planning and engineering finalized for the field recovery trial and those teams underway, then uh, the approval team will start to work on the, the, the full mining approval even this year. So we'll be doing a lot of overlapping. And in the presentation we've had out with our scoping study, it shows those overlapping bars. So the feasibility study through 24, uh, which is probably around a nine-month time period at least, um, at the same time, we've been engaging with uh, nuclear utilities both in Europe and the US um, since about uh, early 22. So I've had a series of meetings. Um, there is interest in potential early offtake, and, and by that I mean conditional offtake contracts. Uh, a lot of the utilities that are of, of a, a decent size need to do contracts with a whole range of future providers. So they are interested in, in helping to kickstart new production. And we have a uh, so yeah. so in that in that sense it's going to pay up front. Um, they they would um, prepay. No, no, no prepay. What we're after though is is to get um, at suitable pricing structures. If we could do uh, let's say an early offtake contracts for twenty percent of our production, 
conditional upon financing, conditional upon a final approval and committing to the project, then then that opens up the door for us for a range of things. First of all, um, uh, we have a marketing agency arrangement with Traxxas, the global trading group Traxxas. So Traxxas out of North America um, are actually our marketing agent. So they'll help us put in direct contracts between us and the utilities. They don't have an offtake right. It's not an offtake contract, but, but it's between us and utilities. But on the basis of, of us putting in some initial early contracts, um, Traxxas have a very, very big balance sheet. And uh, part of our agreement is they'd be happy to to put up the US fifteen million into our um, pre-development stage work. So we've got some incentive to get a couple of early stage contracts in place that might support that going forward. Um, as uh, as debt or equity? Um, it, it's purely as debt, uh, not as equity. That's the plan. And uh, and and then we would discuss a, a repayment arrangement around that and. Part of that repayment arrangement could be in the form of uranium if we negotiated that. But it's uh, Traxxas have the arrangement we have with them. Many many players like ourselves will employ an experienced long term uranium market person. They might be based in Europe or the US. They'll they'll do the same thing that Traxxas are doing. Introduce you to, to players and utilities, get you meetings, and then uh, through travel and uh, contracts, start to arrange initial offtake. Um, essentially, we're using Traxxas to do that, but it's got some added benefits. Traxxas trade on the short-term market essentially between 10 and 15 million pounds of uranium a year. They've got access into, <clears throat> excuse me, uranium offtakes from a variety of sources. So, the relationship between us allows us, as we're commissioning a site like Samfire, that if we have some commissioning issues, we've got some backup with some trader material through that partnership that we can provide into contracts if we had to. The other opportunity it creates for the future is is trading houses quite often are not able to do long-term contracts and, and don't necessarily want to. They use the sport, sport market. But between the two of us, for example, if we're producing 1.2 million pound a year, we could bid on 1.6 million pound a year of contracts, of long-term contracts to utilities. And then utility can see that you've got not only primary production supply, but a very high level of traded uranium available. And so you can lift... Your, your total market penetration. And and certain long-term well-known producers in, in uh, the uranium business have been doing that for many years, um, augmenting their produced uranium with traded uranium. So it, it just creates that combination of opportunities which is of benefit to Traxxas and benefit to us. So there's about four different areas where this marketing ar- arrangement uh, suits both of us. Uh, thank you. Now, the... Um I know that the uranium market has kind of slightly come off the boil in terms of the equity portion. I, 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 it's interesting that the the underlying market seems to, you know, the uranium pricing has has progressed steadily over the last three or four years. I mean, uh, just in late 2018, the uranium price was around $25 a pound, and here we are three and a half, three and a bit years later with it up at $50 a pound. Um, so the, the underlying fundamentals of the industry have improved, and yet the the equity response has given back all of the gains that uh, were seen in the kind of the rush into uranium equities in early 2021. Um, your share price is languishing. What do you think is going to be required to kind of reignite the market's interest, the equity market's interest in uranium? Well, I think we're seeing it progress. First of all, it's not unusual, as I said earlier, for commodities like uranium or cobalt or lithium to have a, a rush of interested parties and investors into a commodity that, that lifts it right up and, and beyond where potentially it should be. 
Um, this occurred before in 2004, five, and six, and and certainly it, it's occurred in other commodities. So we've seen that, and we've seen it now bed down, and you'll see basically where the, the uh, equities like ours uh, are sort of roughly where they were, but it will come down. <clears throat> You've got those projects which are restarting, have moved up the chain faster. Ours, which are still you know four to five years away from production, are only going to move slower. And that's just a natural way of the world to some extent. But what we are confident in is the both the politics and the dynamics in the nuclear power and uranium market have changed dramatically. So first of all, we saw from December 20, even before the uranium price moves, you saw the politics move. The, uh, the Biden administration became the first Democrat administration in history in the United States to fully support nuclear power. And that's been unheard of. So that really generated the interest in, the, in, in early 21 into uranium equities. Um, then you saw the price start to move from about March, April, which really started to lift in 21, lifting equities moving up as you saw a more market interest come in. And that occurred right through 21. And then in 22, you got a real kicker because the Ukraine war that kicked off and the potential, um, well, the high level of restrictions placed on Russian uh, in, in all spheres of business started to indicate that that was going to occur in uranium and nuclear as well. And of course, most people know that, that 30% of, of the US utilities, for example, have been burning Russian EUP for, for many, many years. And, and for good reason, because that's from the, the old megatons to megawatts program that was initiated uh, way back in the 80s, but really kicked off in 1993, to convert excess weapons-grade material in, in Russia and Eastern Europe in a power station grade and bring it into the market. And the US was a big supporter of that. It took a lot of risk out of the world. And, and it provided some, some <laughs> let's call it cheap, nuclear power fuel uh, for a long period of time. Now, that finished in 2012 officially, but Russia then took it over and was now down-blending and, and uh, uh, producing EUP and selling it into the market. Now, the recent Inflation Reduction Act and the, and the current uh, bill that's before Congress are essentially going to phase that out in the US by the end of 27. Now, the utilities have been anticipating this, in particular the US ones, but also those in Europe, and the amount of long-term contracting in 2022 picked up sixfold from, from the year prior. So you're already seeing that underlying EUP being phased. Now, that's going to flow through to the other components of nuclear fuel. Um, the, the, if anyone's looked at the conversion price recently, it has skyrocketed. Um, so you're seeing that that's moved up. Um, we know that the, with a, a fairly fixed capacity of enrichment, the only way to vary and can increase the amount of EUP out of enrichment plants is to go from essentially underfeeding, which is what they've been doing in the last sort of 10, 20 years, to overfeeding. So um, there is evidence that enrichment companies are now being doing direct uranium purchases and lining up uranium purchases to enable them to overfeed plants. And uh, eventually that requirement to replace supply out of Russia is going to feed down the whole chain. So we've got a confidence that the the uranium long-term uranium pricing contracts will gradually move up. And like many of our peers, we're waiting for the first $60 long-term contract price to be announced. Um, even though it's not announced, it's usually found out. So let, let's just see when that happens. I mean, everything you've been talking about there is kind of the the, the, the macro background, the context, the, the, the commodity price support for uh, an investment in something like alligator, as a if, if I was a stock watcher 
on alligator what what would you see as kind of the, the catalysts to de-risking catalysts or kind of valuation catalysts that that you that you're holding the levers for in the next 12 months well i think you compare it to to our peers who are two or three years in front so if you look at boss energy if you look at air energy you look at uh, uh, peninsula then you'll see that look um three years ago they had gone through some updated feasibilities they they were starting to talk to utilities. Then they announced their first contracts. Uh, then then they got some financing, and then they started to construct, which they're doing now. So so we're in we're on that path. We're we're well financed for our current work. In fact, uh, we're we're financed for this um, fuel recovery trial, uh, no question, and and some and most of our exploration. So we can go through this in a capital manner through until the feasibility. Uh, we've got to deal with Traxxas, which could help that financing, or we could come back to markets if there's a market-sized boost to equities, which is good. And that'll take us through a fuel, positive fuel recovery trial. That's that's a, a big step for us to get. First, another probably um, a resource uplift by the third quarter this year, positive fuel recovery trial, initiating feasibility, uh, engagement with utilities on the first two conditional offtake contracts, and post-feasibility, a decision to finance in 25, 26, which would lead to production in 27. So so we're on that path. So it really is a matter for, for equity investors to say, okay, do I go to invest in someone who's already got a 400 or 500 or 600 or 700 million market cap, or do I come back to someone who's on a path that means they could get there? And and it's always, uh, people will chop and change as to which way they want to go. Um, uh, we're just making sure people understand where we are, uh, we've got a very experienced ISR team. Andrea Marcelin Smith, our chief operating officer, was one of the more senior managers at Heathgate Resources, which ran the Beverly Four Mile projects for, and they're still going 25 years later. And she helped find the form. In fact, she was the project lead on the discovery of Four Mile. So she's now been putting in place under her the ISR team that we need to to carry this forward. So it's um we're at the stage that. Perhaps some of our peers were two or three years ago. That's that's where probably the easiest way to say uh, what you're asking. But we've got a number of steps we're going to be putting out to make sure we go forward. Now, obviously, this is the Samfire's the the, the the big deal. Uh, you've also got other projects. You've got exploration uh, in Arnhem, Cooper, Italy. Uh, what what in terms of your budget? of time and money are you allocating to non-Samfire work? Well, the the, the Samfire work is is taking uh, easily somewhere between 70 or 80% of the time and the effort and dollars. That, that's no question. But we have got money set aside for our exploration. So we'll be spending uh, roughly between two and a half, three million or so up at Arnhem Land this year because we've got a new area called Narvalek North, which was granted to us in early 20, just as COVID hit. So we could not get on the ground. Uh, there was no work allowed in Arnhem Land. It is Aboriginal. It's all Aboriginal-owned country, and they restricted access for health reasons for more than two years. So we only just got back on there late last year to initiate our first work, and so now we're back on in a bigger way from May onwards this year. We have an IP survey underway and a range of um, of RAB and air core drilling to identify the uh, the geology underneath. Now the, the big difference between our historical work in Arnhem Land, which was mainly underneath the, the, the deep sediments, the sandstone sediments on top, this is now has no sandstone escarpment or rock over the top. So while it's got a strong weathered profile, it's a lot cheaper exploration. So this is, uh, apart from a one-month period or six-week period last year, 
this is our first chance to really get in and look at that ground. Um, we've got historical geophysics that's been done by companies like UXA and a range of others up there from the 70s and 80s. We've got some initial some drilling work that was done uh, in the, uh, more recently than that. And now we're pulling all that together in a database and a data set, along with our first um, assays from the, uh, the air core drilling last year. So we're pulling that together in a range of geochemical maps, matching with the geophysics, and, and our plans are, are now in place for this year. We'll make an announcement around what we found last year, but we did say to the market last year, our initial work up here is stratigraphic work. We've got to determine the underlying geology. We've got geophysics. We've got uh, falcon gravity over it now. We're about to do IP surveys and mix that with the geochemical signatures as we go. So it's early stratigraphic work. But there is so much smoke in this area. Just off our boundary to the south is a U40 prospect held by a company, Devex. Um, six and a half metres at 7% uranium. There is a, a lot of smoke further to the south of that. And a lot of those structures run up into our country. So we, this area just hasn't had the work uh, to, to show what could be there. And so we're pleased to be doing that. And what everyone knows, if you find a resource of a suitable size in Arnhem Land, and like Ranger, you've got a 20 or 40 year mine. So it's, a, it's the highest grade zone in Australia. And, uh, and you can really get some horsepower out of it if you make a discovery. And would they allow a mine up there? I mean, um, Ranger's been... Then. kind of uh, uh, <laughs> pending or in a, in a hold pattern for, for so long. I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, obviously you're exploring there because you think there's, an op- there's a possibility that you can make a discovery. Um, uh, th- there's a geological risk and then there's a permitting risk as well, isn't there? Correct, yeah. But it's different locations. So Ranger and Jabaluka are in an area where they're on leases surrounded by Kaku National Park. Across the East Alligator River to the east is Arnhem Land. That is Aboriginal-owned and controlled land. So you do agreements with the traditional owners directly, with the Northern Land Council being the, the arbiter and the coordinator of that. So we have agreements in place for the Narvalek North and all our other tenements. And in fact, the Narvalek North agreement, when we put this in place and it was signed off in early 20, um, we announced the details of it and it's quite unique. It actually, if we find an economic deposit in the area of those tenements, and we want to take it through into a mining agreement, which is already allowed for under the agreement we have, but you've got to renegotiate points of it. Um, there's a one-off right for the traditional owners to evaluate it, and if they wish, come in as a 25% joint venture partner, a group of TOs in the area or the deposit. Now, um, we've done that for a few key reasons. It is now becoming the norm, and it is fair for Indigenous peoples in countries to be joint owners of projects on the lands if you do an arrangement with them. So we're keen to promote that. And uh, and this right, while they'd be free carried to that point, they would then contribute from that point. And there would be certain other royalties or payment streams that drop off. And so that's, that's outlined in our announcement around uh, early 20 when we put that out. So the traditional owners are well aware that what we're trying to do is find an economic deposit. And if we find one, they have a choice. They can just allow the mine to proceed with the normal payments and royalties that they would get from such a project in that area, or they can become a partner in it and actually get um, a value investment right up front, which, of course, they can trade a portion of if they wish. So that that tells you that that mindset within Arnhem Land is in place there that's anticipating, look, there could be mines found and they could be mines operating. So... Um, there has not been, a, there's only been one uranium mine operated in Arnhem Land, and that's Narbalek back in the 80s. 
the the mine ran for a period of about eight or nine years. It was relatively small but high grade, uh, and that mine was fully rehabilitated. So um, apart from that, there hasn't been a discovery because, of course, uh, there wasn't the encouragement from the federal politics for a long period in Australia to look for, and that changed essentially from uh, the, the 2000s onwards. So by the in the late 2000s in particular, the, the Federal Labor Party changed its policy and now both sides of politics federally and in the state of South Australia and in the Northern Territory have approved uranium mines. So that's why our uranium exploration work is in South Australia and the Northern Territory. Good. Well, we haven't spoken about energy, min- um, minerals, other metals. We haven't spoken about Italy. But um, I think let's leave it there for now because sure. we've, there's, there's so much to unpack in terms of the – and to think about in terms of the uranium strategy. Um, Greg, thank you very much for your, for your time. Um, it's been really interesting getting to know a little bit more about the company. Thank you, Merlin. I'm enjoying the chat and we're looking forward to uh, taking our project forward in line where, with where the market heads.